What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today I have an author who I've been trying to set something up with forever. <laughs> Just to give you a little peek behind the, the curtain, we rescheduled this uh, this thing like so many times. Uh, the, today's guest is Michael Baskar. All right. He wrote this incredible book called human frontiers and and yeah uh <laughs> first uh when the when the delta variant hit uh oh no no it was omicron yeah it was omicron uh his family got hit with it they ended up recovering and being all right but then he caught it and on the tail end and we had to reschedule and all that but we finally did it michael and i we finally did it so before i introduce him in this conversation <laughs> a couple uh quick things make sure you're following me on instagram and twitter at the rewired soul uh i've been uh, i started a new job it's going great i'm loving it so much but uh podcast schedule um changing a little bit uh right now i'm doing like one episode a week but make sure you're following me on instagram and twitter so you don't miss any episodes now second thing some of you are listening to this episode a day early how is that happening? Because some of you are subscribed over on Substack. Uh, if you become a paid subscriber, it's only $5 a month or 50 bucks for the year. Helps me and what I'm doing here and my obsession with books and all that kind of stuff. Pay my internet bill to upload these podcasts. So if you come uh, support over on Substack, you get all these episodes a day early. And lastly, take two seconds. Do me a huge, huge, huge favor. This thing that you're going to do for me, absolutely free. Head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, leave a review, all right? That helps out a ton. Uh, not only is it good for the algorithms, but I do read your feedback, all right? I do uh, love talking with all of you guys on social media and everything, but I also read the feedback on the reviews and everything to hopefully uh, make the podcast a little bit better and more enjoyable. So take a few seconds, head over to Apple Podcasts, and even if you're not listening to this podcast on Apple, you could still go to Apple Podcasts, leave a review. All right. So anyways, anyways, today's guest, Michael uh, Bastar. All right. So he is somebody who has been, uh, you know, uh, interested in innovation and tech uh, for a long time, expert in the history of all this. And he wrote this phenomenal book called Human Frontiers. And I'm like, I don't know if I'll be interested in this. Uh, those of you who know me, there's a few things like I love to read. I love to learn uh, a few uh, topics that I'm not interested in. One fiction but i've had a couple fiction authors on here i'm trying to get into it all right but another one is history i wish so much that i could just enjoy reading books about history but it's it's just not something i'm a fan of uh so i didn't have high expectations for this book but it was fantastic and this book is not a history book by any stretch of the imagination it starts out that way kind of talking about innovation you know like uh flight and like technological advances and all that but then it gets up to where we are today so uh, in this conversation, I talk with Michael a lot about um, innovation stagnation, right? Like when he started talking about that in the book, I, I really started thinking about it. Like, when's the last time we had like a really big, new, innovative idea? You know what I mean? Uh, there's these little like things every now and then, like these kind of like upgrades or tweaks or whatever. But for the most part, like when's the last time, like, you know, uh, some sort of flight was invented, right? Uh, or, or something just really big like that. Like most generations have something like that, but we haven't seen that in years. So uh, Michael kind of breaks down uh, why he believes that is. And we talk about a few different topics, but what's interesting too is we even touch on kind of like the culture wars and everything. You're like, what's that have to do with innovation? Well, you'll hear in this conversation, which Michael discusses in his book, 
some of these culture wars, they prevent people from uh, researching things and studying things. But also, Michael and I, we dive into the complicated topic of capitalism, because those of you who know me, I have a lot, a lot, a lot of criticisms and issues with capitalism, but I do kind of see how it leads to innovation. But there are some issues going on where it's still causing stagnation, which Michael and I discuss in this uh, in this episode. And we also discuss the tricky topic of regulation because there's pros and cons to it that we all need to think about it. Because if you're, uh, you know, if you're a lefty like me, you're like, yeah, regulation, get rid of monopolies and stuff. But there are some unintended consequences that we also need to take into consideration. As with most topics, these things are very nuanced that we need to sit down and kind of reflect on to get a better idea. So there's nobody better to talk to about these topics than Michael Bascon. All right. So anyways, make sure you head down to the description. Uh, make sure you're following uh, Michael over on Twitter. Grab a copy of his book, Human Frontiers. Like I said, I really, really enjoyed it. It got my wheels turning on a ton of things that I, I don't really think about too much. And when a book can do that, it, it gets a thumbs up from me. So make sure you grab a copy and follow Michael. And yeah. Make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter too. Just a little quick reminder, okay? But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Michael Baskar about his new book, Human Frontiers. All right. Hello, Michael. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm great, Chris. Uh, great to be here. Yep. Uh, for everybody listening, we've been trying to set this up for months and we finally did it to talk about, uh, yeah, your awesome book. So we're going to be talking about Human Frontiers, which was released not too long ago. It was just last year. But for everybody uh, who has yet to meet you and read the book, can you kind of introduce yourself and what your background is and all that? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I am a, uh, a writer, a publisher, a researcher, an entrepreneur. Um, I do quite a sort of random bunch of things, really. Um, I run a publishing company, um, which is which, which is a startup. Um, but I also am just very interested in ideas, in technology, in the history of society, and and how all of those things work together um, and 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 come together. Um, as part of that, I did um, a couple of years working at DeepMind, um, an amazing mm. AI company, um, as a consultant writer. And yeah, you know, I, I somehow just try and make all of these different things uh, crash together into some kind of coherent form of life. Um, and and as part of all of that, got interested in in the questions that formed the heart of this book, Human Frontiers. Yeah, yeah. And I, I when I picked it up, I was like, I don't know if I'll find this interesting, but it was it was really interesting. And you start off with some uh topics that I don't even think that that much about. And like one of the one of the first things I wanted to ask you about is you kind of discuss uh, you know, we how the history of like these big breakthrough ideas, and that's kind of like slowed down. We've seen some stagnation and we'll dive into some more of the like little nooks and crannies, but like it's been a while since we've seen just like a breakthrough, like, oh my God, we can fly type deal. So is that something that we see throughout history or is it something specific to the last hundred years or so? Well, so yeah, I guess the sort of the, the argument of the book, um, broadly speaking is that in the, in the very biggest breakthrough ideas of all, 
we're seeing a stagnation. And, and this sort of runs counter, I think, to the way a lot of people look at the world. You know, a lot of people think, oh my God, there's so much change. There's so much happening. Um, technology's running away with itself. Um, God, this, this, this is just this unprecedented, crazy time. And there are parts of, of, of all of that that are true, but, um, probably starting about 10 years ago, a bunch of economists and technologists and anthropologists and, and just all kinds of random people started to say, hold on, there are all of these symptoms of stagnation out there. There yeah. are all of these signs that actually we are not just racing into the glorious future unimpeded, that actually compared to other times in history, um, things might be struggling or at least um, we're way, way richer than we've ever been in the past. We've got way more education, more people. We should be having more big ideas. We should be having more breakthroughs. We should be having more game-changing technologies, more stunning revolutionary artworks, more new political ideas. Mm -hmm. But actually, despite all of our extra wealth, education, people, we're not really having any more of those things. Mm -hmm. We publish so many more academic papers a year. We come up with so many more technological patents every year, but actually are we creating more sort of basic innovations or more kind of fundamental changes? Not really. And it was just getting into this debate and, and, you know, I was, I was working on AI at the time. And so I was thinking about, you know, how, how do you come up with a radically new idea and make it happen? Um, mm -hmm. Which is what DeepMind is, is trying to do to build AGI, artificial general intelligence. I was thinking, well, you know, that, that is an idea that is a genuine breakthrough. If somebody does that, that, that is a colossal epoch making breakthrough, mm -hmm. but actually there just aren't that many things that, that are equivalent to that. And I, yeah. I can give examples and. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, even speaking of AGI, like the only, so the, uh, the only reason I even know what that is, is because. Uh, last year, I got really into trying to learn and understand uh, crypto and blockchain technology. And uh, there's there's a, a a company out there. What is it? ERG, ERG, Ergo, something like that. I'm not sure if you heard of it. But oh no! Well, someone within the Cardano community is working on AGI. But anyways, anyways, right. that's kind of where I I heard about that. And even when it comes to AGI or crypto or blockchain, because I dove into that, I'm like, wow, this could really be like world changing stuff. So when it comes to these technologies, I guess what I'm asking you is, uh, you know, there's a lot of fear around AI just from like the public when you hear the news talking about it. And with like blockchain and crypto right now, there's a lot of NFT hype and scams and all sorts of stuff. So how much do you think, like, I don't know, the mainstream narrative, like, holds back innovation based on fear? Like, the stuff I hear about crypto and NFTs and stuff like that, I'm like, this is completely missing what the technology is capable of and trying to do. So are we ever going to get, like, uh, uh, public acceptability? Like, I wonder how much that holds back some of these innovative things that are trying to break through, you know? Um, yeah, so I think... Um... Part of the reason we have this slowing of big ideas, and by the way, I, I think crypto, blockchain, Web3 is actually a big idea. And it's an example of a big new idea that sort of pretty much has mushroomed up in, let's say, the last 
20 years, you know, you've got some of the early work on it in the nineties. And then of course the, the great paper on Bitcoin, um, a decade after that, and then everything's happened since. And I think that is an example of an amazing big new idea that has managed to come about, but yeah, talking about some of the explanation of why we might be seeing a slowdown and a big part of it is social factors. Yeah. Um, a big part of it is that we are building a society that is timid, that does not really want to kind of take risks. So I, I would call it less fear, more an excess of risk aversion that yeah. we just on so many different levels are not supportive of risks. We're not supportive of massive business risk in general. You know, people want to see a safe, secure return. Um, even, you know, VCs are looking for a safe return. Yeah. Um, and people always say, oh, well, you know, that that's this just wild space where everyone's gambling. I mean, if you're just wildly gambling, then, you know, you probably won't stay in business, but you, you do need to track some lunatic things. Um, in academia, people just want to get citations. They just want to get their paper published. Yeah. They just want to get on the next rung of the ladder, you know. When say somebody like, um, Max Planck, who's pretty much came up with the basics of, of quantum theory or the, or the foundations of it, you know, he went off, he kind of spent 10, 20 years working on that without publishing anything on these crazy ideas. You know, if you're a scientist today, there's no way you can do that. Yeah. That would be such a risk with your career. Um, <laughs> people are worried about getting canceled. They're worried about saying the wrong thing. So. It's, it's sort of fear is, is kind of the word, but it's risk aversion. And so, um, you know, I, I think that it is just this all pervasive thing that, that goes everywhere. Um, in, in the specific case of, of blockchain, I think, um, actually it's done an amazing job of overcoming that. Um, yeah. and you know, some of the risk aversion, um, well, certainly historically, um, was merited. I, I was, I was reading, um, a book about crypto the other day and in the kind of boom years of initial coin offerings, like, you know, um, going up to say 2018, 2019, something like 98% of initial coin offerings completely failed Yeah, and about 82% of them were scams. Um, so, you know, perhaps a bit of risk conversion is necessary, but I think if, if you care about big ideas, and I do, and I think everyone should, because I think big ideas underwrite what our society, what our civilization can do. It defines it. It puts the limits on, on human potential at any given moment. So it's important. Mm -hmm. If you care about that, a society that is overly risk averse will just suck. And in too many ways, that is the society that we've built. Yeah. So when I, when I think about these, these topics, right, I always think of like, you know, two levels, right? You got the bottom and you got the top level, right? So like top level, I'm thinking like, uh, you know, politicians, people making the laws and regulations and all that stuff. Then the bottom level is just the average person, right? So when we're looking at this and we're talking about, you know, risk averse and, you know, all these other things, I'm curious, like, which direction do you see that going? Do you see like the average person being afraid of uh technological innovations and things like that or do you see things like you know lawmakers mainstream media because for example and i'm sorry if throughout this conversation i go back to like blockchain probably the most innovative thing that i have like somewhat of an understanding of but if you think about like blockchain technology and you know changing the way we use money 
there's a lot of people up top who would uh, or could possibly lose a lot of money from that, right? So especially with all the money in politics and all these other things, I'm like, okay, so are you guys pushing a narrative that makes the people, the public, afraid of this? You see what I'm saying? Or like kind of uh, they don't want to take that risk of, you know, making this more acceptable and all that kind of stuff. So I, I, or, or are the people up top just reacting to what the public's doing and trying to, you know, keep them calm and, okay, we're not going to move too, too far ahead with this innovative idea, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no. So, I mean, it's, it, it's the sort of risk aversion kind of bottom up or top down in society. Yeah. Um, I definitely think it is a bit of both. And, you know, I wouldn't underestimate how that bottom up people don't like radical change. Um, big ideas are really destabilizing, you know, something like Copernicus arguing that the world went round the sun, that's a big <laughs> yeah. idea. But if you're just somebody, you know, uh, you know, suddenly your whole world has been turned on its head. That's very nice. So, you know, Charles Darwin comes along and says, oh, well, you know, you're all actually descended from apes. Oh, like crap. That's, that's, you know, rocks your world. New technologies, they destroy people's old jobs, their habits of life, new ideas are unsettling and so on. So I don't underestimate all of that, but I think there is a really powerful top-down component as well. And that is driven by the fact that, um, almost everyone at the top has a lot more to lose when a big idea comes in, you know, mm -hmm. who was it who fought back against both Copernicus and Charles Darwin? Well, it was the sort of the established church and the established elites at the time. Yeah. You know, they were the ones who benefited from the old ideas that these big new ideas are exploding. Um, just like, you know, the people with, with the most to lose from blockchain are probably the sort of, um, technocrats and the sort of financial elite, essentially who, who benefit the most out of the current system. Um, and I, I would sort of say it, it really is a kind of systemic thing, you know, it's, it's, it's about the people build systems that are risk of us. Yeah. So. You know, like, I, I think actually in some ways blockchain is, is, is doing okay because it's working in a frictionless space, like an area where it's much more sort of difficult, for example, is let's say you come up with a, a brand new medical treatment, mm -hmm. a new treatment for cancer. Um, well, you know, it's really hard to get that through anywhere <laughs> because one, you've got a lot of people who are very, very invested in the current way of doing things, you know, all mm. of their training is there. They've got a lot of patents there. It makes them a lot of money. Um, and secondly, the, the bar to getting that launched is huge. You have to do all kinds of clinical trials that are going to be clinical trials in humans. Um, yeah. if something goes wrong, that trial is going to be stopped and it's never coming back. You know, one, one thing I always sort of mention is, you know, the first 16 people who had a liver transplant died. Mm. Um, and if you had a clinical trial today where the first 16 people died, well, that trial's just getting stopped and, and is going nowhere. Yeah. And you know, it's not as if like doctors and pharmaceutical companies or, um, healthcare regulators don't want to stop cancer. You know, I think really they all do, yeah. but they all have an interest in how things are in the status quo. They all have a kind of risk aversion because, well, if something doesn't happen, nobody's going to care. But if it does happen and it's your fault, well, you're in big trouble. Yeah. 
um, and you know, so it just creates this systemic pressure against something that is radically new. And again, you know, it means that it's quite easy to innovate incrementally, to do things incrementally, because you can just keep pushing what you've got, keep taking small steps, mm -hmm. fine. But if you just want to clear the decks and do a sort of paradigm shift in what's going on, that will encounter much more resistance from all the people who have all of these sunk costs in what is there already. Yeah. So that, and that, that is really powerful. And I think in every field you see this, um, you know, I think, I think it's especially clear in, in things like academia, um, you know, to some extent that the kind of Silicon Valley ethos did, did get rid of this a bit, but you know, now I think you've just got a whole new bunch of powers, you know, um, the big tech companies, they love to talk about innovation and, yeah. and disruption and so on. But you know, they're multi-trillion dollar behemoths. They don't really want to be disrupted. They don't really want the company to come in and eat their lunch. They're actually yeah. quite happy just being these huge beasts that make money. They're yeah. quite conservative now. Yeah, it's, it's you know, uh, like something, uh, you know, I write about and talk about, uh, you know, because I have quite a few criticisms of, you know, capitalism, even though I do see a lot of the benefits, but it's something that you're touching on when it comes to, uh, you know, um, what, what it takes, for example, for a new drug to hit the market, right? Like there are, you know, there are a lot of these companies who fund their own studies and all these things. Like, so uh, the Matthew effect kind of kicks in where something that's big continues to get bigger because now that they they're can take that money, reinvest all these other things and the little guy, you know, they're going to wait 10, 15 years just to, you know, yeah. get some funding and all these other things. But, you know, uh, that, that brings me to my, my next question, because I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure, uh, uh, my takeaway or where you stood on the idea of like regulation, right? Because I do see both sides of this. Okay. Because regulation, it can, it can stifle innovation because people can't try and test and do all these other things. Right. But without regulation, like we're talking about, you get these behemoths who start to monopolize things. So it's this weird thing. So specifically when it comes to innovation, what are, what, what are, what are your overall thoughts on like regulation? Is it like a certain, is there a, a certain amount on the dial that we need to turn it to before, you know, it can start holding back people who have these new big ideas? Yeah. So I think, I think when I, you know, worked on this book, Human Frontiers, I think I went on, on something of a, a, a journey vis-a-vis -vis regulation in that before I started thinking about this topic in, in a lot of detail, I think I probably had the knee jerk reaction of, of any kind of, you know, right thinking liberal in that I thought, well, regulation's really good. Companies yeah. will always get away with everything they can. And therefore, you know, generally regulations there to make the world a better place. And it's all about, you know, it makes things safe and it makes things nice and yeah, regulation is good. Um, that, that was where I was. The more I researched, I think the more skeptical I became of, mm. you know, just blanket regulation, because I, I think it really does have a deadening effect on what people do. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of no coincidence that, you know, when say the transport infrastructure that we have today was created, it was, it was created with almost no regulation. So, you know, what, one of the examples of stagnation that, that I always give in connection with the book is transport. And. Think of it like this. If you were born in, in 1850 and you lived for 70 years, 
when when you were born, um, you know, ships were still only just becoming steam power. With the railways, they they were the first kind of major change in transportation in in centuries, and you, you would have seen those. But over the course of your life, you would have seen the motor car come about, the bicycle, airplanes. You know, it it was a kind of a, a massive, you know, steel hulled um, uh, ocean liners that could cross the Atlantic in five days when, you know, would have previously taken weeks when you were born. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a massive, massive shift in every dimension of transport movement. Now imagine you were born in 1950. Um, over your life, you will have seen all of those things get a lot better, cheaper, safer, nicer, more comfortable with kind of cup holders and sat nav and everything. Yeah. Um, but the edge kind of fundamental modality of your transport wouldn't have changed. You know, if, if I was, um, you know, an, an American coming home from Europe in the 1940s, well, I would have got maybe buses, some trains and a plane over the, the sea driven home in my car at the other end. Well, that's exactly how I do it now. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of astonishing that somebody who lived in the 1850 and was born then saw deeper, more radical changes than somebody in our own time. And, you know, one of the key things was, well, you know, did, did, um, you know, Ben's inventing the, uh, the, the, the motor, the motor car. You know, did he worry about insurance and, and regulation? Did the Wright yeah. brothers worry that, you know, they needed this kind of permit, this kind of, um, permission that they needed to worry about, are they going to get sued by people who don't like the noise and so on? Um, they didn't worry about that. They just got, they just went ahead and did it. Um, now if you want to do a kind of crazy transport innovation, you're probably not allowed. Like the truth is like the regulations just will not let you do that. Yeah. You know, if you want to create a flying car startup, well, you know, what are people who are complaining about the noise? Where are you going to build the infrastructure to land them? So on and so on. Yeah. So you, I don't really have a good solution because, you know, I, I, I do believe regulation is necessary, but to try and pretend that it doesn't have the flip side of this deadening effect yeah. is, is wrong. And, and the other thing about regulation is it, it's very rarely actually rolled back. So mm. it does just accumulate over time. Yeah. Um, and you know, that, that's definitely true in, in, in the U S where, you know, the, the list of federal and state regulations just every year gets longer and longer. And Literally everyone from whatever sort of physical background, people do tend to say, yes, we want to simplify this and rationalize this. doesn't really ever happen. Yeah. It just carries on going. You know, you need this permit to do this sort of job, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I could definitely relate to what you're, you're saying because like, yeah, I'm very like, you know, left-leaning liberal, but I've been like forcing myself to read these very like pro-capitalist, pro-individualism uh type books like uh i really got into like people who like love ayn rand's philosophy and everything and i started getting into that and and yeah like you said like i started thinking about it and thinking about how it uh regulation can hold you know these up-and-comers up but i think where i find an issue i don't know if you agree or if you see this or if i'm crazy but what it seems like is when you get these big corporations or like multi-billion dollar companies when they're arguing against regulation they're like 
well, how's the little guy ever going to start up and become like what I am, right? And I'm like, I don't think you guys are thinking about the little guy when you're making this argument. No, you know, no, definitely not. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Um, no, and, and yeah, it's 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 really no good answer. And I, I, I'm it's something I'm sort of do think about. There is there is a field um, that is growing up that is quite interesting, which is about you know sort of in, innovation spurring regulation. So it is. How do you regulate the tech industry whilst also actively using that to encourage innovation? So there are ways of doing, and, you know, I, I think probably, um, regulators actually are becoming more aware of the externalities of what they do. They're becoming more aware that, um, innovation is such an important component of you know, driving improved living standards and so on. I think they are probably a bit more conscious of that now, but you know, the, the, the problem of, of everything, the problem of regulation as the problem of technology is, is you can never predict the second, third, fourth yeah. order effect of what you're going to do. So, you know, you, you, you just can't factor in everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to, I wanted to go back to something that you touched on, which is one of the most, uh, the, one of the parts of the book that I found most interesting because. I, I have a lot of guests on who talk about like cancel culture, outrage culture, and all those things. And when you brought it into the conversation about innovation, you know, I really started thinking because uh, I like I'm really into like you know psychology, social psychology, all that kind of stuff, and human behavior, and all these things. And it just in the last year or two, off the top of my head, I could think, think of two or three instances where somebody was researching or studying something, and the second the public found out about it. Right. Like just, you know, somebody's just trying to do some research. And this happens a lot with science in general. The public will freak out. Right. That's where I get yeah. an issue. I'm like, I'm like, how can we even research these things? And uh, the, the, the most recent example I have, which I hate to bring up because it's such a touchy topic, but it was about uh, a, a professor. I was it Duke University, something like that here. But she uh, was writing or researching like pet pedophilia right right and and like uh it, it turned into this huge thing uh they said you're normalizing it blah 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 and she was like forced into resignation and i'm sitting here as a father and i'm like i'd much rather research and figure out how we can treat these people right and get inside and like figure this stuff out than have no idea and just go the way we're going so like for me when i saw that i'm like this seems ridiculous like this is something that could decrease harm but we're not even allowed to talk about it. And, you know, there's been books like uh, I had uh, Carol Hooven on here who wrote the book about testosterone and she was called oh, yeah. transphobic and all these other things. I'm like, I'm like, you guys, like, we have to, we have to research this stuff so we can start talking and uh, making society better for everybody. But even people who are just trying to do the science are just getting blasted. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm curious, like your thoughts on that and like, what are some of the solutions so we could just research some things, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would say that, um, there's just this generalized problem with the climate of ideas that it is totally frenzied and politicized and just, just, it's become like a sort of, it's, it's become a battleground. And on the one hand, you have the kind of cancel mobs who believe that huge areas of research or discussion just, just should never come up yeah. and it's never hundred percent possible to predict what they might be. Um, so you have to be really careful. But on the other hand, you've got, you know, people like 
presidents and prime ministers essentially saying experts don't know what they're doing, ignore this <laughs> yeah. silence. Um, you know, facts are irrelevant. Um, and we had our politicians in, in the UK saying, you know, everyone's fed up of experts, all of this sort of thing. And again, just creating an environment where things like expertise and, um, you know, rational argument and the idea that some things are true are called into question or that, you know, anyone who disputes with them are just rabid cultural Marxists or whatever they want to call them. And so you've got just on all sides, just this frenzied atmosphere that means that if in good faith, you just want to be exploring risky ideas, you could just get it from a number of directions. And I think it has this chilling effect whereby there, there are huge amounts that people just don't want to risk saying, mm -hmm. I think it has a chilling effect because it means that the, the whole, the whole discourse of original thought kind of has to second guess itself. Um, or, you know, some of the foundations of it, of just, you know, evidence of, of actually free inquiry being really important are, are chipped away. So yeah, for me, it's just about all sides, just producing this, this really toxic environment for original radical thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and... we get, what, what do we do about it, Chris? Um, yeah. that's something that I. Again, I, I don't, I don't think I had a good answer for that in the book. Like I come up with a bunch of suggestions, uh, of, of how we, you know, and, and by the way, I should say to listeners that I, I actually, you know, I'm quite optimistic that this great stagnation that I think there's a lot of evidence for might be coming to an end. Um, oh. and there are some really exciting signs. Um, but. Yeah, I, I have a lot of suggestions. I don't really have a suggestion for that other than what we need is for people who are committed to discovering, discussing ideas, just going out and doing it. Um, but that's harder than it sounds. And honestly, I think I'm like most people, I, I, I sense myself all the time. You know, there are just some topics that I think, <laughs> yeah. well, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to go there. Um, I don't think that is healthy at all. That's not a healthy public sphere when even people who would like to think of themselves as being quite principled and high-minded about all of this stuff actually have a whole list of things they just won't go near. Things that are actually quite important and fundamental to mm -hmm. a healthy society or healthy debate or, you know, intellectual curiosity and you just say no. Yeah. That, That's that... not a good place. Yeah, that's something I think about all the time because when you get into these debates about like, oh, is it cancel culture? Is it not? Does it even exist? What nobody talks about is the self-censorship, right? Because, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, it's not that bad. Oh, how many professors have actually gotten in trouble or how many professors out of the, you know, hundreds of thousands or whatever have actually lost their job? And I'm like, but you, there's no way to quantify how many would never say something right? Or even touch a branch of research purely out of fear. Like how, how do you even calculate that? Because it's yes, just not I, happening. I think, I think that sort of censorship from cancer culture is only the kind of, you know, it's the kind of buzzy end of things like far more what's going on is, you know, you've got a young, like scientific researcher who's got a kind of crazy idea and they're there, they're about to write it down. And then they're like, well, will my supervisor just think I'm an idiot for going after this? Mm. Will the grant funder just think 
you're bonkers. I'm not going to go near you. Uh, if you're at a company, you've got some crazy new product idea. How many people just think, yeah, I'm never going to get this through the committees. Um, it's not happening and so on and so on. So mm. cancel culture, I think, I think it probably does exist, even if it's, it's often way overblown and, and, you know, the, I, most of the people who are sort of ranting about it, you know, are just, you know, making their own little capital out of that. <laughs> but there is this, this wider, um, cultural self-censorship and it goes back to that risk aversion point. Pe people don't want to, or don't feel they can put themselves out there. They don't want to risk radical ideas because as we discussed, people don't really like radical ideas. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's cancel culture is just a tiny part of this wider self-censorship where people push themselves towards the safer things, the surer bets, the known. Yeah. So, so like, when, when, uh, you know, something that we, I think a lot of us deal with is something that you, you touched on. Like I think about even the last company I worked with, right. Where, uh, you know, the best way I explained it was I was there for two years and my first year I had a bunch of ideas, right. Bunch, like I'm just a guy where my brain never stops, right. I'm always coming up with new stuff. I love being creative and everything. And, you know, uh, maybe like 2% of them we even tried. Right. So my second right. year there, I just. You know, so, uh, on a, on a day-to-day -day type thing, like if there's any, like, you know, business owners or managers reading your book, like how, how can they better manage? Like, you know, is, is there a certain amount of risk they should be taking? So, you know, employees, because the people on the ground floor are going to see things that can be improved or maybe done, be done in a different way. But I don't think I'm alone with my experience with like. 98% of them are just shut down, shut down, shut down. They're just, you know, just, nope, let's just keep, let's just keep this ship going in the same direction, you know? Yeah. Um, but you know, like one, one example of this that I give in the book is, is that, that when, when Google was in its early days, it had its famous 20% time Yeah, where it would give employees 20% of their time to just go and explore whatever projects they like. And that, that was incredibly bold and out there for the time. Um, but you know, we never hear about that anymore. And, and as far as I can tell, it basically doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, but you know, more businesses could and should do things like that. You know, so many of what are now core Google projects came out of that from like Gmail to how AdWords, yeah. AdWords works and, and, and tons of like genuinely world changing products came out of that process. So, you know, build those processes in, I think the world has to get more self-conscious about backing ideas that seem crazy. And, you know, a big part of what, what is now happening in, in certain corners is that people are starting to really proactively looking at what kind of structures, what kind of institutions, what kind of mechanisms you actually need to build. So. You know, it's, this is our really kind of exciting area of research in its own right. Mm. How do you come up with really exciting and, and out there ideas? Um, and, and perhaps I think the most important thing is that you know, the, the honest truth is that most businesses are never going to do this kind of thing. So mm. it, I, I, I might honestly just say to, to the average uh, manager, yeah, probably don't worry about it. It's, it's really his likely only the very few number of organizations mm. that you need 
who are just really just crazily out there about stuff and let anything go. You know, we don't need, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily, I don't need my, my hairdresser to be trying to <laughs> pursue some massive great idea in cutting my hair, yeah. you know, but I, I would probably like company, um, you know, supporting new forms of energy for the world to be having that kind. So, um, it's about finding the right institutions and building new institutions without the shackles, whether that's startup businesses or whether it's new kind of scientific organizations that funded by the government or whoever, but exist out, out, outside the shackles and bureaucracy that inevitably grow up. Yeah. That's what we need to do. We need to experiment and we need to build. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, uh, something that I, I was dying to have you on to ask you about is, uh, something I hear about quite often, uh, especially in the very like pro capitalist conversation is there's often, uh, examples given like Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, you know, uh, um, uh, Steve jobs, right. Where the, the argument is, is if we didn't, if we, if we shackled these people, if we didn't live in this, like purely capitalist world or, or, you know, just even here in the United States where, you know, we can't even get healthcare, like a lot of other things, but anyways, they're like, uh, these people wouldn't be able to innovate. And anyways, the question I'm getting at is what I find a lot is that innovation is often credited to one person. And, and I, 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 I'm curious your, your thoughts on that. Like, is it, do you think we give too much credit? Like is Elon Musk just the entire idea behind electric, you know, at least great electric vehicles, right? Like, uh, Thomas Edison, you know, uh, even going back to the light bulb, like you hear about, like he had a team of people and all these other people like working around, but there's always one, there's often one person who gets a lot of that credit. So should we be spreading that credit out a little bit more, or is it often just one person with these big ideas? Um, to be honest, we, we long ago left behind the age when it was one person with a, with an idea. <laughs> um, and, and actually, you know, this is something that I, I track and it's, it's probably evidence for stagnation is that ideas are almost never had by individuals anymore. They're had by increasingly large teams. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the number of, um, academic papers with over a thousand authors is just going crazy. You know, there are all of these massive yeah. big science projects. Um, it, it is, it's kind of absurd that we're stuck in this, uh, you know, quotation marks, great man theory of innovation <laughs> or ideas, because it, it simply is just not in any way reflective of how ideas happen. They've always happened by people mixing, but you know, in, in 17th century, you know, it was possible for someone like Isaac Newton to basically go off into their study for a few years and come out with. Uh, a bunch of stuff that is, is radically new and, and does change the world. That is really apart from perhaps in some like crazy areas of mathematics or, you know, some of the arts, if even there, it's really not how things work. And in technological innovation, it definitely isn't how things work. You know, the, the truth is people like, um, Steve jobs and, and Jeff Bezos are not really technological innovators in any way. Um, they are not people who have had any kind of technological insight and then built it. 
they've done is taken other people's work and packaged it in a way that is incredibly effective. Now, you know, that might sound dismissive. It's not because doing that is phenomenally hard yeah. and you know, it may even be harder than, than having the original insight. But then it, it's simply wrong to sort of call them technological innovators like that, who are, who are the ones that we should peg everything to. They're phenomenal uh, business executors, but I think it, it's really wrong to get sucked into that, that trap. It's, it's wrong to do that even in, in areas like the social sciences or in the arts. We live in a world where ideas are team-based, where they require yeah. lots of time, capital, and people. Um, and, you know, when we give the Nobel Prize to sort of one or three people, that even that really is not, not what is happening. You know, like, um, you know, two people get given um, the Nobel Prize for, for discovering CRISPR gene editing. But actually, there, there were loads of postdocs in the lab who were completely integral to that. There were other teams working on it that were really important. There was a whole kind of massive scientific foundation that loads of researchers had laid that led up to that. Like, yeah. fine, you've just taken two people and you say, right, those are the heroes. But that just isn't reflective of how science or innovation or ideas work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, speaking of... Uh, teams and talent and all of that. Uh, I got a couple more questions for you. And one of them, which I thought was really interesting is, uh, you touched on the fact that a lot of the, the great thinkers, right? The people who are going to like some of these Ivy league schools or MIT, or just, uh, you know, just killing it in like economics or mathematics or whatever, they're getting like sucked up by like these wall street banks and like or or they're going to like Facebook where they're learning how to make the algorithms better. And it's like all, all these. Uh, great thinkers are kind of getting funneled into, you know, stuff that's not really like bettering mankind because these companies and corporations have so much money, they can just offer these great thinkers a ton of money and bring them on board. So how much is, is that affecting kind of like the innovation stagnation? And, and I don't, I don't, I don't know if you have any uh, ideas for what we can do about it because money is often a major factor and you'll make a lot more money on wall street than you will becoming an academic trying to publish papers and get, you know, funding and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have a, a kind of quantification of, of what it means, but I just have this huge sense that if you kind of zoom out from the world and you think about what, what humanity could be doing with itself, like how far we could be pursuing a whole sort of project of, of, of humanity, then we just have this crazy misallocation of talent. Like, you know, most of the smartest people in the world are doing stuff that is basically irrelevant to what, you know, will fundamentally matter to, to the future. And you know, at, at best is irrelevant and at worst is, is just actively making the world crap. Um, and you know, you just have to say that, you know, that is just, 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 just a misallocation. It's yeah. just not really the way things would ideally be if, if you care about, yeah, advancing, you know, I, I don't see that in a sort of naive way, but, but in you know, hopefully a sort of critical way, advancing what is possible for humanity. Um, 
and you, you've hit the nail on the head. You know, the, the, the truth is people are driven by incentives and, and money and, and that's understandable. I think probably what we need is to create more avenues for people to be able to explore these kind of ideas. And, you know, one of my big suggestions is we need to revive kind of grand missions that defined mm. a lot of us policy in the mid 20th century. So stuff like the Manhattan project and the Apollo missions. Now they were colossally expensive. They were just, just insane amounts of money had to go on those. Yeah. Um, you know, and it really was just a, a fire hose of money. Um, and people kind of look at that and they say, oh, that must be a waste. But actually like when you, you know, when economists really go in and study the return on that, it's absolutely massive. Um, you know, the, the number of spin-off technologies that were created, um, in mm. the Apollo missions, something like 2000 spin-off innovations, um, that, you know, really kind of just embedded in, in so many things, you know, the, without the Manhattan project, well, you know, obviously had the negative, uh, yeah. effect of interest in nuclear weapons, but it bought nuclear energy, which, you know, powers 10% of the world, um, and, and also advanced physics in such a way that, you know, we probably wouldn't have computers to some extent without the Manhattan project, it was really important, um, at driving money towards computers because they had to calculate stuff to build the bombs, um, loads of other sort of impacts came from. So, you know, if today we kind of revived that sense of mission, we're like, yeah, it's colossally expensive, you know, right. Everyone who's just running off to work at Goldman Sachs, you know, you're super smart. No, come and work on this mission. It's, it's got this incredible budget. Um, so don't worry about it. That would almost certainly pay off. That would deliver a massive return on investment. And, and, yeah. you know, it's a very common pattern, you know, these things do pay off, but here's here, here it comes back to it again. It's really risky. You know, you're, you're asking the government to spend say tens of billions of dollars on people going off and exploring wacky ideas. You might pay someone an astronomical salary just to sit in a room for five years, staring into space. And you have yeah. to be like, that's fine. You have to be okay. You have to be comfortable with just letting things go. And we're not really there as a society, but to me, that would probably be the best way of reorienting talent. And I think you, you need this idea of a mission because it's galvanizing. Yeah. It's just the only thing that will convince us to open up the tap sufficiently. And you know, there, there are those missions, you know, like cure cancer, stop global warming, um, colonize Mars, whatever, whatever it is you want, you know, like yeah. something like that would, would drive a lot and, and slightly work to correct the misallocation. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, speaking of well, the last, the last question for you, you know, speaking about space, global warming and all these things, like, you know, in the last year we've seen like, you know, uh, like a lot of stuff with SpaceX, Jeff Bezos going like two feet above the atmosphere and, you know, Richard Branson and all that. But anyways, I'm curious your thoughts, because, uh, you know, like you said, like a lot of innovations came from, you know, space exploration and all the work and stuff that went into that. But something I'm always thinking about is, are we spending too much time trying to figure out space and getting to space when there are just an endless amount of issues on the planet Earth? Like, I, I, I don't know. Do you see benefits? Like, cause I'm always like, just, just spend the money down here. Just figure this out. Then we'll worry about out there. So where's a good balance. Do you think? 
No, I, I'm actually very pro, um, space and, and yeah. doing all of this work. And it's, it's actually, I think become at least certainly in the UK, I think it's become very unfashionable to hold the view that, you know, it's a good thing that people are putting rockets in space and, and giving this sort of crazy talk about asteroid mining or getting mm. people onto Mars. I think the, the the dominant view now is that that's really wasteful. It's really indulgent when there are so many problems on earth, so much poverty and so on. But I just don't think of it as a sort of zero sum game. You know, uh -huh. I think ultimately, um, we do need to be pushing back the frontiers of what, what we can do, what we know, where we can go. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's so sort of reductive to say, oh, well, just because somebody's kind of building a rocket, that means that we that that's actively taking away from an effort to alleviate poverty. I just don't think that's how the world works. You know, mm -hmm. why are you getting, you know, why are you going against the rocket and, you know, not the diamond industry, probably people spend more on jewelry every year than they do on going into space. Yet, you know, space seems to attract a lot of ire, you know, actually it is doing a lot of good. It's, it's potentially offering us, um, you know, the, the classic Elon Musk argument that, that it is, it is a, a backup plan. If something goes wrong and something might go wrong on this planet. Um, yeah. but you know, it's also offering us new technologies, new vistas of what might be possible. It's just, I guess, you know, maybe I'm just trying to justify my sort of sad, um, little boy <laughs> dreaming, reading too much science fiction. And, and I, I would probably say maybe it is just that. But I, I find the idea of a world where we just back off from this ultimate area of exploitation, of, of exploration, um, really a bit depressing. And I think that that was a great symptom of stagnation that we managed to go to the moon. Humanity walked on it. Um, it looked like we were starting a new phase in our history and then it just stopped. And I think yeah. that, that was a symbol of stagnation. Yeah. Um, and the fact that that might be changing is, is again, a symbol that perhaps we are beginning to reaccelerate and that once again, we are starting to tackle some of these big ideas. Yeah. No, I, I think you bring up a great point that it's not a zero sum game. It's not like if Elon Musk wasn't sending up rockets, he'd be like giving all that money to poor people or whatever. But, but like you said too, like I often think about how like, you know, us landing on the moon that was decades before I was even born and we haven't touched it since so like you know uh you know i i, I love you know thinking of outer space and stuff like that but but yeah when i think about you know how resources go to different places absolutely like it's it's cool it's interesting and i'm always just like eh, could we be doing something but but yeah i i i love i love in the book how you end with a bunch of different suggestions for how we can kind of like get things rolling again and all that so everybody's gonna have to grab the book to find out. So, uh, yeah, Michael, thanks so much for joining me. Where can people find you and where can people find human frontiers? Is it available internationally? I think so. Uh, yeah. So it's published, on. published in the States by MIT press. Um, so just find it, look, look up human frontiers on, uh, Amazon and you'll find it and find me, Michael Vasca on Twitter. Beautiful. Michael. Thank you so much. Like I said, we've been trying to do this forever. So it was a pleasure. And yeah, we'll do this again when you write the next book. Thank you so much, Chris. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with 
Michael and and yeah, like like <laughs> we were talking about, you know, there there are a lot of different angles uh, where we need to think about things like, you know, uh, regulations, um, the way we we kind of react to different kinds of research and you know the academics and what they're doing, um, and yeah, Michael even uh, had me from this conversation rethink a little bit of you know my criticisms and views on you know big companies like you know Amazon and you know and everything like that, so. Yeah, that's what these books and these conversations are all about. We need to start thinking about these things because so many of these issues, uh, whether it's capitalism, technology, innovation, we get into this kind of like black and white thinking. And that's why I love reading books by people like Michael, because they can really open my mind to different angles and things that I never even thought of. So yeah, so technology, it is part of our lives. And it's one of the reasons why I don't sit here and complain about, you know, the terrors of social media and technology, because it is not going anywhere. We're not going backwards with technology. So it's important that we read books like Michael's and have these conversations. So head down to the description, make sure to follow Michael, grab a copy of his book, Human Frontiers. All right. But before I let you go, follow me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. A uh, great way to help support the podcast. One of them, share this conversation, share it all over the place, Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, uh, wherever it is, send it in an email, uh, get the word out there. If you like this conversation or any of the conversations, do me a favor and share it out there. Another great way is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps out a ton. And uh, some other ways to help support the podcast. One, like I said, some of you are listening to this episode a day early. Uh, and that is because you're a paid subscriber over on Substack. It's five bucks a month or 50 bucks for a year. Uh, that's linked down in the description, the rewiredsoul.substack.com. Um, yeah, with the new job, I haven't been writing as much, but I still upload all the episodes over there. So make sure you check that out. Um, and then, yeah, you can head over to the rewiredsoul.com, grab some of the books that I've written on mental health, addiction, recovery, my experience getting canceled over on YouTube. That's all available over there. And lastly, if you're somebody like me uh, who is, you know, uh, trying to focus on your mental health and improve it, there is an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. So if you want some affordable online therapy with a licensed therapist, check out that affiliate link for BetterHelp. All right. But another huge, huge thanks to Michael. Like I said, we had to reschedule this thing so, so many times. So I'm so glad we're finally able to link up. Make sure you follow him, grab a copy of his book. And yeah, uh, for all of you wonderful listeners, have an amazing rest of your day. And I will see you in the next one.